Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this episode is called The Decline of the Crusaders, episode 10, The Crusaders Divided. In the last episode, we heard about Saladin's growing empire as he brought Syria under his control with the capture of Aleppo to add to Egypt. The Crusader states, known collectively as Outremer, were now completely surrounded by Saladin and facing their gravest danger yet. Now was when they most needed good leadership and unity of action. But the problem for the Crusaders was that they had neither. They were very unlucky that the king of Jerusalem, Baldwin IV, who was their nominal leader, was dying of leprosy. And although he'd been a courageous leader insofar as his health allowed him, he was now too weak to provide the leadership that was desperately needed to face Saladin. As we will hear in this episode, in the absence of strong leadership, the Crusaders became more and more divided. And in so doing, they became their own worst enemies. As before, I'll read extracts from my abridged version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. So let's go. Hope you enjoy it. The year 1183 began ominously for the Crusaders, although Saladin had withdrawn his army back into Jordan and was not apparently contemplating a major offensive that year. There was division among the Crusaders. In particular, relations were deteriorating between the leper king of Jerusalem, Baldwin, who didn't have long to live, and Guy of Lusignan, who he had appointed as his regent. The barons didn't like Guy, who they considered to be weak and a coward. Baldwin and Guy quarrelled, and with the support of the barons, Baldwin deposed Guy. Instead, on the 23rd of March, 1183, he proclaimed as his heir his nephew, who was also called Baldwin, and was Sibylla's son by her first marriage, a child of only six years. Meanwhile, though he could not move without help and could no longer even sign his name, he resumed the government himself. Guy's response was to retire to his county of Ascalon and Jaffa, and there to throw off his allegiance to the king. Baldwin therefore seized Jaffa, which he put under the direct authority of the crown. But Guy defied him in Ascalon. In vain, the patriarch Heraclius and the grand masters of the temple and the hospital interceded for the rebel. The king lost lost his temper with them and banished them from the court. He had summoned them to order them to preach the crusade in Western Europe, but some months passed before they would now consent to go. Meanwhile, the council of barons on whose advice the king deposed Guy was composed of Beaumont of Antioch, Raymond of Tripoli, the lord of Caesarea and the two Ibelins. But one powerful baron who wasn't present was Reynald of Châtillon, now the lord of Outre-Jourdain. For the time had come for the marriage to take place between the princess Isabella, the king's half-sister, and Humphrey of Turon, who was Reynald's stepson. Reynald determined that the ceremony should be celebrated with all the pomp at his disposal at his castle of Carac, to which the bridegroom was heir. During the month of November, guests began to arrive at the castle. Many of them, such as the bride's mother, Queen Maria Comnena, were Reynald's personal enemies, but they came in a last attempt to heal the breach between the warring crusader factions. 
With the guests arrived entertainers, dancers, jugglers and musicians from all over the Christian East. Suddenly the festivities were interrupted by the terrible news that Saladin was approaching with his army. The destruction of the great castle of Karak and its godless lord Reynald ranked high among Saladin's ambitions. So long as Reynald held his great castle, he could intercept all the Muslim traffic that tried to pass between Syria and Egypt, and experience had shown that no treaty could restrain him. So on the 20th of November, Saladin was joined by reinforcements from Egypt and encamped before the walls. The farmers and shepherds of the countryside, who were Christian Syrians, drove their flocks for safety within the town and many took refuge in the courtyards of the great castle. Saladin at once attacked the lower town and forced an entrance. Reynald was only able to escape back into the castle owing to the heroism of one of his own knights who single-handedly defended the bridge over the moat between the town and the citadel until it could be destroyed behind him. With a fine show of bravura, the wedding ceremonies were continued in the castle. While rocks were hurled at its walls, the singing and dancing went on within. The lady Stephanie, mother of the bridegroom, herself prepared dishes from the bridal feast, which she sent out to Saladin. He, in return, asked in which tower the young couple were housed and gave orders that it should not be bombarded by his siege engines. But otherwise he didn't relax his efforts. His nine great mangonels were in continuous action and his workmen almost filled up the moat. Messengers had hurried to Jerusalem to beg the king for help. He summoned the royal army which he put under the command of Count Raymond but he insisted on coming himself in his litter with his men. They hastened down past Jericho and up the road by Mount Nebo. On his approach Saladin whose engines had made little effect on the strong walls of the castle lifted the sea and on the 4th of December he moved back towards Damascus. The king was carried in triumph into the castle of Karak and the wedding guests were free to go home. Their experience had not, however, ended the divisions between the Crusaders. The next autumn, Saladin once again marched against the castle of Karak with an army to which his Turkish Autokid vassals sent contingents. Once again, the huge fortifications were too much for him. He could not lure the defenders out to fight on the slopes below the town and once again when an army from Jerusalem approached he retired into his own territory only leaving a detachment to raid Galilee and to pillage the country as far south as Nablus. Saladin himself returned to Damascus. There was still much to be done in the reorganisation of his empire and the time had not quite come for the elimination of the Christians. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, the leper king Baldwin kept the reins of the government in his decaying hands. Guy still held Ascalon, refusing to admit royal officers into the town. But his friends, the Patriarch and the Grand Masters, were away in Europe, trying in vain to impress the Emperor Frederick and King Louis and King Henry with the perils awaiting the Christian East. The Western potentates received them with honour and discussed plans for a great crusade, but they 
each made excuses why they could not themselves participate. All that came of the mission was that a few individual knights took the cross. In the autumn of 1184, Guy once again infuriated his brother-in-law, the leper king Baldwin. Ever since the Christian capture of Ascalon, the Bedouin of the district had been allowed, on the payment of a small tribute to the king, to move as they pleased to pasture their flocks of goats and sheep. Guy, annoyed because the tribute went to the king and not to himself, fell on them one day and massacred them and annexed their flocks. Baldwin was now bedridden and was never to rise again. He saw how fatal had been the influence of his mother and her friends and sent for his cousin Raymond of Tripoli to take over the administration. Meanwhile, he prepared for his death. Before an assembly of the barons early in 1185, he announced his will. His little nephew was to succeed to the throne. At the express wish of the assembly, Guy was not to have the regency, which was to go instead to Raymond of Tripoli, who was to hold Beirut as payment for his services. But Raymond refused the personal guardianship of the little king, lest the boy, who seemed delicate, should die young, and he was accused of hastening his death. In view of the boy's health, the barons further swore that should he die before he reached the age of ten, Count Raymond should keep the regency until the four great rulers of the West, the Pope, the Western Emperor and the kings of France and England, should arbitrate between the claims of the Princess Sibylla and Isabella. Meanwhile, in a last attempt to bring the Crusader factions together, the personal guardianship of the boy was given to his great-uncle, Jocelyn of Courtenay, who now began to profess a cordial friendship towards Raymond. All the assembled barons swore to carry out the king's wishes. Amongst them was the patriarch Heraclius, just back from the west, with the grand master of the hospital, who was called Roger of Les Moulins. The grand master of the temple had died during the journey. As his successor, the order had elected, after a stormy debate, Raymond's old enemy, Gerard of Ridfor. Gerard also gave his assent to the king's will. The child was taken to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and there, held in Balian of Ibelin's arms, he was crowned by the patriarch. A few weeks later, in March 1185, the leper king was released by death from the agonies of his long disease. He was only 24. Of all the kings of Jerusalem, he was the most unhappy. His ability was undoubted and his courage was superb. But from his sickbed, he was powerless to control the intrigues all around him. At least he was spared the final humiliations that were yet to come to the kingdom of Jerusalem. When the king's pathetic corpse had been buried in the church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, Raymond, as regent, summoned the barons once more to ask them what policy he should follow. The winter rains had failed and there was a threat of famine. The only crusader to come eastward was the old Marquis William of Montferrat, grandfather of the child king, and he, after satisfying himself that all was well with his grandchild, settled down quietly in a fief in Galilee. His son Conrad, the king's uncle, set out to follow 
follow him but stopped on the way at Constantinople, where his brother Reiner had perished a few years before. There he offered his help to Reiner's avenger, the Byzantine emperor Isaac Angelus, whose sister he married. He forgot about his nephew and Palestine. It was clear to all the barons assembled in Jerusalem that until a large new crusade could come, the starving country could not face a war. They approved of Raymond's suggestion that a four-year truce should be sought from Saladin. Saladin, on his side, was willing. There had been a quarrel amongst his relatives in Egypt that needed a settlement, and he had heard that Izzedine of Mosul was restive once more. Therefore, the treaty was signed, commerce was renewed between the Frankish states and their neighbours, and a flow of corn from the east saved the Christians from starvation. In April 1185, Saladin decided to try once more to take the Zengid city of Mosul, controlled by Izzedine, and he marched northward, crossing the Euphrates at Biraik on the 15th. There he was joined by Kukburi of Haran and even by envoys from Izzedine's vassals, the lords of Jazeera and Irbil. Izzedine sent embassies to the Seljuk Turkish rulers of Konya and of Parsamenia, who sent troops to help him. In June, Saladin arrived before Mosul, refusing all of Izzedine's offers of peace, even when the prince's aged mother came herself to plead with him. But Mosul was still too formidable a fortress. His troops began to sicken in the summer heat, when in August the Seljuk sultan suddenly died, Saladin moved northward to capture the sultan's vassal cities of Diakbir and Mafakarin, and to rest his men in the cooler air of the uplands. There he fell ill himself, and rode, almost dying, to his friend Kukburi's castle at Haran. His brother Aladil, now governor of Aleppo, hastened to come with the best doctors of the east, but they could do nothing, believing his end to be near, and knowing that all his kinsmen were plotting for the inheritance, he made his emirs swear allegiance to his sons. Then, unexpectedly, he began to mend. By January 1186, he was out of danger. At the end of February, he received an embassy from Izzedine and agreed to make peace. In a treaty signed by the ambassadors on the 3rd of March, Izzedine became Saladin's vassal and was confirmed in his own possessions, but the lands across the Tigris south of Mosul, including Arbil and Shazur, were put under emirs appointed by Saladin and owing him him direct allegiance. Their presence guaranteed Izzedine's loyalty. Saladin himself was then at Homs when Nazar Eddin, Shirku's son, and his own son-in-law was Emir. Nazar Eddin had plotted for the throne of Syria during Saladin's illness. No one therefore was surprised when he was found dead in his bed on the 5th of March after celebrating the feast of victims. The victim's child, Shirku, a boy of 12, was given the succession to Homs. Saladin confiscated much of his money, but the boy aptly quoted a passage from the Quran, threatening torment to those that despoiled orphans and had it restored to him. In April, Saladin was back in Damascus. His empire now stretched securely to the borders of Persia.
The truce between the Christians and the Muslims was bringing back some prosperity to Palestine. Trade between the interior and the ports of Acre and Tyre was eagerly renewed to the advantage of merchants of both religions. If peace could be maintained until some great crusade could arrive from the west, then there might still be a future for the kingdom of Jerusalem. But fate was once more unkind to the crusaders. About the end of August 1186, the young boy King Baldwin V died at Acre, not yet nine years old. The regent Raymond and the Seneschal Jocelyn were present at the deathbed. Professing himself anxious to work in with Raymond, Jocelyn persuaded him to go to Tiberias and to invite the barons of the realm to meet him there in security from the plots of the patriarch in order to carry out the terms of King Baldwin IV's will. He himself would convey the little corpse to Jerusalem for burial. Raymond fell into the trap and went off in good faith. As soon as he was gone, Jocelyn sent troops that he could trust to occupy Tyre and Beirut and remained himself in Acre, where he proclaimed Sibylla as queen. He dispatched the royal body to Jerusalem in charge of the Templars. His messengers summoned Sibylla and Guy from Ascalon to attend the funeral, and Reynald of Châtillon hurried to join them from his castle at Carac. When Raymond discovered that he had been tricked, he rode down to Nablus to Balian of Ibelin's castle, and as lawful regent of the realm, he summoned the high court of all the barons. All his supporters hurried to join him. There they received an invitation from Sibylla to attend her coronation. They replied by sending two Cistercian monks as envoys to Jerusalem to remind the conspirators of the oath sworn to the leper king Baldwin IV and to forbid any action to be taken until the court had held its deliberations. But Sibylla held Jerusalem and the seaports. The troops of the Seneschal Jocelyn and the constable Amalric, Guy's brother, were on her side, and Reynald of Châtillon had brought his men from Outre-Jourdain. The patriarch Heraclius assured her of the support of the church. The grand master of the temple, Gerald of Ridfor, would do anything to spite his old enemy Raymond. Alone in Jerusalem, the grand master of the hospital was true to the oath that had been sworn. Among the people of Jerusalem, there was much sympathy for Sibylla. She represented hereditary right, and though the throne was still nominally elective, the claims of the heir could not be easily ignored. At the time of her mother's divorce, Sibylla's legitimacy had been confirmed. Her brother had been king and her son. Her one disadvantage was that her husband was disliked and despised. The patriarchs and the Templars closed the gates of Jerusalem and posted guards to prevent any attack from the barons at Nablus. They then made arrangements for the coronation. The royal insignia was kept in a coffer with three locks whose key were in the care of the patriarch and the two grand masters, each holding one. Roger of the hospital refused to surrender his key for a purpose that he considered contrary to his oath. But at last, with a gesture of disgust, he threw it from his window. Neither he, he nor any of his knights would take part in the ceremony, which was held as soon as everything could be made ready. In view of Guy's unpopularity, the patriarch crowned Sibylla alone, but a second crown was placed by her side, and Heraclius, after crowning her bade her use it to crown whatever man she thought worthy to govern the realm. She summoned Guy to approach her and kneel before her and place the crown 
on his head. The assembled company then did homage to their new king and queen. Against the fact of the coronation, the barons who disliked Guy could do little. However, Raymond of Tripoli retired to his wife's lands in Galilee, vowing that he would never pay homage to Guy. Soon afterwards, King Guy held his first assembly of barons at Acre. Raymond did not appear, and Guy announced that Beirut, which Raymond held as regent, was taken from him, and he sent to tell him to render accounts for public money that he had spent during his regency. Baldwin of Ibelin, who was present, was summoned to pay homage by Reynaldo Chatillon, standing at the king's side. He merely gave the king a formal salute, telling him that he left his lands of Ramler for his son Thomas, who would pay homage when he was old enough. He himself, however, would never do so. He left the kingdom a few days later and took service under Beaumont of Antioch, who welcomed him gladly and gave him a fief larger than that which he had left. Other lesser lords joined him there, for Beaumont made no secret of his dislike of Guy. With the kingdom so torn into embittered factions, it was as well that the truce with Saladin held firm. Guy, indeed, would have maintained it, but he reckoned without his friend, Reynald of Chatillon. Protected by the truce, the great caravans that travelled between Damascus and Egypt had been passing again without hindrance through Crusader lands. At the end of 1186, an enormous caravan was journeying up from Cairo with a small convoy of Egyptian troops to protect it from Bedouin raiders. As it moved into the Moab, Reynaldo Chatillon suddenly fell on it, slaying the soldiers and taking the merchants and their families with all their possessions to his great castle of Karak. The booty was larger than he had ever taken before. News soon reached Saladin of the outrage. Respectful of the treaty, Saladin sent to Reynald to demand the release of the prisoners and compensation for their losses. Reynald refused to receive his envoys, who went on to Jerusalem and to complain to King Guy. Guy listened sympathetically and ordered Reynald to make reparations, but Reynald, knowing that it was to his support that Guy owed the throne, paid no attention to his order, and Guy could not or would not force his obedience. So shameless a breach of the truce made war inevitable, a war which the divided Crusader states were ill-fitted to face. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on the podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the road to Saladin's greatest victory, the Battle of Hattin.